Hello, and welcome to this episode of Felonious, a podcast where we discuss the realm of true crime. From chilling cold cases to the wild and wacky, we'll explore it all with a perfect blend of seriousness and humour. My name is Emma. And I'm Nazia. To keep up to date with what's coming up, be sure to follow us on Instagram at felonious.pod and visit our website feloniouspod.com. We hope you enjoy this episode, so let's get to it. So, your find of the week. Are you a sweet or savoury person? I th- I'm a bit of both, but I think I'm mostly a sweet person. However, when I was pregnant, I was definitely savoury. I craved salt and vinegar crisps like mad. I went through so many packets of salt and vinegar crisps. Can you get them in France? You can, but they don't have McCoys. Ah, yeah, they don't have McCoys here either. Yeah, and I was really craving just specifically McCoys. I think it was just a texture and the crunchiness as well. So I was really craving those. So when I went to England, uh, when I went to London while I was pregnant, I made sure I got McCoys while I was there. But no, they had they have um, uh, so you know Walkers. They've got Lay's over here. It's the same logo. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was that brand. But yeah, we get like the family size pack of salt and vinegar and I'd eat it by myself in bed <laughs> yeah I don't blame you I would, I would do the same thing what about you I'm more of a savory person but the question was for you really because I have two stories one's a savory and one's a sweet okay so you said that you're a sweet person right yeah generally yeah I think most people would agree that you are a sweet person but Oh, thanks. Oh, uh, yeah. It's the only compliment <laughs> you'll get from me in this. <laughs> thanks. I'll take it. <laughs> Another BBC News article. Surprise, surprise. The headline is Sweet Tooth Thieves Swipe £65,000 of Harrogate Fudge. Oof, that sounds nice. <laughs> what are they going to do with all of that fudge? Well, so they stole the thousands of pounds worth of sweet stuff from a North Yorkshire industrial estate and they it was about 2,000 cases of sweets they made off with in Harrogate, um, which is in North Yorkshire in England. And the police officer warned that if, if anyone had been offered any chocolates matching the description of the ones uh, which were stolen... They were urged to come forward and contact the police. But it doesn't actually say what they were going to do with the fudge. But I'm guessing because something similar happened here with a load of chocolate that got stolen. Right. And the thieves were breaking up the chocolate bars. Right. So that they could put them in pick and mix because pick and mix is a big thing here. Black market pick and mix. Yeah. What? Yeah. So that's probably what they're doing. Maybe. Maybe they're going to sell it to, like, events. You know, like, for weddings and stuff. It could be. How do you get away with that many cases? How can no one notice? Apparently it happened between two in the afternoon in November and... um, 6.30 6.30 in the morning the next day. Right. So, yeah, it doesn't actually say what they, they had, like, what the plans were for it. Maybe they didn't know or didn't find out. Yeah, I guess unless they find it, yeah. they find out who the culprits were. But um, do you want my savoury one as well? Yeah, go on. Okay. Swee's arrested for butter smuggling. Qua? <laughs> Sorry, what? Butter smuggling. Smuggling, yeah. Smuggling butter. Yeah. Why would you smuggle butter? I don't want to know how you smuggled butter. <laughs> Norway no, was. Don't go in... <laughs> There's no gory details, is there? No, no, no. Okay. Not that I know of, anyway. <laughs> but Norway, back in um, 2011, uh, Norway was mm. facing a butter shortage and it was the run up to Christmas. So um, everyone wanted butter. And two Swedes from 
from Sweden <laughs> had, brought, had smuggled in 250 kilograms of butter, hoping to sell it for over 80 US dollars per kilo. Wow. Where did they smuggle it in from? Uh, so that they smuggled it in from Sweden to Norway. All right. Sorry. Yeah, you did say. Yeah. But uh, hold on. Why did they have to smuggle it in? Why couldn't Norway just import it? It's a very uh, good question. I don't know. That's so funny. I remember, um, so just after the whole Ukraine war thing, there was a, a shortage of mustard in France. And I mean, they were blaming everything on the war. But yeah, people were going crazy because the French love mustard. They put it in everything. So yeah, there was a shortage and... Uh, one supermarket that we go to, they finally imported some random brand from Poland. So, so we just like stocked up like everyone else. But it's just very bizarre. Ah, uh, so the the shortage happened like during the Christmas time. So it's probably like too short notice to get like imports in. Yeah, I see. And I suppose if other countries have their own demands, fair enough. What a thing to be in prison for. <laughs> I don't know. Um, if they went to prison. Yeah, I'm just trying to search through. Unless they were just fined. Could you imagine them at a job interview and they're having like <laughs> their, whatever the equivalent of a DBS check is and they have to explain themselves? Yeah, it's a slippery past, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't actually say what happened to them. Well, I guess we can't do a, a podcast episode on them then. <laughs> How funny. Yeah, so those are my finds for this week. But apparently you have a find. Yeah, I have a fat find. I literally found it just over half an hour ago. And my original source was from a very sophisticated and reliable Instagram account called Fuck Jerry. Okay. Very reliable. <laughs> Who is Jerry and why do people want to fuck him? I don't know. But fuck Jerry, whoever that is. It's a very, no, it's a, it's a funny Instagram account. But no, then it, I googled after seeing the post. And this is according to a Guardian article. So on the, was it 11th or 12th? September, a couple of weeks ago, in Portugal, in the town of Levira, two vats holding 2.2 metre? 2.2, what is this unit, M? 2.2 million litres. So it is million? Yeah. I, I thought it was a million, but I was like, that's a fuckload of wine. So yeah, 2.2 million litres of wine at a local distillery burst and flooded the streets. And it was almost enough to fill an Olympic-sized swimming, swimming pool, the amount that just like trickled, well, not trickled, gushed down the, the street. So people, lit, they literally got flooded by wine. Is it red wine? Yeah, it was red wine. I won't sing the UB40 song, as tempting as that is. <laughs> I was so tempted. Can't afford that one. <laughs> I'll just butcher that song. But yeah, local firefighters had to help clean up and the liquid had to be collected and taken away to a wastewater treatment plant. What, are they, are they going to clean it up to make it into wine again? No idea. Not sure. But, I mean, they had to, like, prevent it from going into a river to avoid an environmental disaster. Could you just imagine a whole load of local wildlife pissed off their tits? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And they said, they pointed out that the spill lasted for about an hour, but it didn't leave a strong smell behind because it was good quality wine. And the vats had been used to store excess wine. Portugal, along with other wine-producing countries like France, now have an oversupply of wine due to a drop in consumption, among other reasons. Huh. These vats were just holding excess wine that no one was going to buy or drink. So no one's drinking wine anymore? I, d I don't know. I think people are drinking less. A probably because a lot more people are, you know, health conscious. I guess since COVID, people don't go out as much. And B, there is a cost of living crisis. So I was going to say, yeah, no, uh, people don't have as much disposable income as they did. Yeah. So yeah, I guess like people aren't drinking a lot of wine. 
So now it's just exploding in vats and flooding streets. Wow. So it didn't stain the the roads or anything? They didn't mention that. They just said it didn't smell because it's good quality. <laughs> Are they going to use white wine to try and get it out of it? As... <laughs> yeah. Or isn't there like a trick with baking soda or something? I don't know. I just thought that... Um, <laughs> I thought the the white wine or red wine worked and I, I thought it would work vice versa, but I don't think it would. <laughs> I don't think so either. No. If someone wants to try, though, it would be funny to see. Yeah, let us know. Yeah. If, if anyone wants to experiment for us. Yeah. We, we gladly <laughs> look at pictures of your attempts. Wine experiments. experiments. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think the last time I drank wine. The last time I drank wine, it, well, it wasn't. It's called No Secco and it's 0% Prosecco. Ah. But it's Prosecco wine. I believe so. Is it just a fizzy wine? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Is champagne wine or is, is champagne champagne? I should know this because I'm... An alky. Yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm in France and my partner used to live near the Champagne region. Uh, yes, champagne is wine. Sparkling wine starts off as still wine during the primary fermentation and then the bubbles are produced during the secondary fermentation. By soda streams. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only thing they're good for. <laughs> do, you, do you think you can make your own champagne with soda stream then? <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think it's a bit more... Uh... Bit more to it than to that. It Otherwise, than that, there'd yeah. be like loads of backyard champagne. Well, if you did make it, you can call it champagne anyway. Yeah, because you can only call champagne champagne if it's been made in Champagne. Really? It's a bit. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's like Stilton Stilton cheese. Yeah, you can only call it Stilton cheese if it's been made made in Stilton. Did not know that. These could all be false. I could be making this up. I, I can ask my very French husband. Yeah, do it. <laughs> Later. Yeah, and let us know in the next episode. Speaking of episodes, before we go on to today's episode, this is linked to it. Have you seen Black Earth Rising? I have. It was a few years ago, though, so my memory is a bit rusty. But I remember it being very, very good, but very disturbing at the same time. Yeah, no, but it is very, very good. Um, and yeah, that's why I, I thought of that when we were researching. It's a Netflix show, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know if it was on Netflix originally, but it's with Michaela Cole, who is absolutely amazing. And it's the first time I've seen her, like, I'm so used to her doing comedy, like with chewing gum. Yeah. Oh, I need to watch that. I haven't watched that before. It's good. Mm. It's very, like, cringe. Yeah. But it is, it's good. But it's so, like, seeing how she's developed over the years, it's, like, she's just a brilliant, talented individual. But, yeah, no, like, having seen that and then watching Black Earth Rising, it's just... Yeah, you can tell that she's she's very, very talented. But yeah, should we swiftly move on to what today's episode is about? If people, I mean, if people have watched Black Earth Rising, they're probably going to guess it now. Yeah. And if you haven't, go and watch it. Yeah, let's start. Let's start from the very beginning with an introduction. Yes. <laughs> so in today's episode, we will talk about Felician Kabuga a Rwandan businessman who has been accused of helping finance the genocide of the Rwandan Tutsis in 1994. We'll discuss his involvement with arming the militia, his ideology, and how he has been able to escape justice for nearly 30 years. Now, we were both eight years old. Thanks. Nazia and myself when the genocide happened. Uh, now we're both older and one of us is taller. Again, thanks. Me. <laughs> We thought it was about time to discuss this horrible episode in recent history. Yeah, and it is going to be horrible. Obviously, it's about a genocide, so there's going to be a lot of mention of violence. I mean, you just have to Google it and like, you'll see images in every search of what was involved in this horrific time. So there's going to be discussions of murder, of rape. We'll also be discussing hate crime and racism and 
with our discussions come us swearing. Yeah, as, <laughs> as, as usual. usual. Yeah. Yeah. There's possibly going to be some mis- mispronunciation of names. So we do apologize in advance, but we, we will try our best. And we're going to find out how the US government, being the US government, are a bunch of bellends. The French government, also bellends. And um, the Swiss government, Toblerone bellends. <laughs> bellends all round. Triangle shaped bellends. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, like, this is going to get a bit political as well, obviously. And when we researched this, we drew our information from loads of sources. So, there's a Netflix series called, is it The World's Most Mo- Wanted? Yeah, World's Most Wanted. It's episode two in that series. There's also a BBC documentary. There's multiple France 24 videos on YouTube and they are in English. They've got the French ones, but there's also English videos covering the genocide. Al Jazeera had one or two videos as well as articles. There's a very short TED Ed education video and there was a GQ article as well. So... We did a lot of research on this. We did, yeah. There's lots and lots of sources. Yeah. So, should we get started? Yeah, let's start. Felician Kabuga was born on the 1st of March in 1993 in Munich, which is present-day Rwanda. It was previously believed he was born in 1935, but he stated in a recent court appearance in 2020 that he was born in 1933. And at that time, Rwanda was a a Belgian colony when ethnicity really determined your chances in life. And the white colonisers provided the Tutsi with access to education and jobs, whereas the Hutu, which made up 80% of the population, were treated as second-class citizens. So before being colonised, the country was already ruled by Tutsi, but as a Tutsi monarchy, the Hutus were the majority and the Tutsi and another smaller community, Twa, were the minorities. However, the Hutus and the Tutsis, they got on quite well. They were on good terms. And Germany colonised Rwanda in 1884, and then Belgium came in in 1916, and they created a hierarchy. They put the Tutsis in charge of running the country as colonial proxies which created resentment from the Houthis. And that's because the Belgians encouraged a political divide by enforcing record-keeping around ethnicity and creating a narrative that the Tutsis were elites, while the Houthis were just like subordinates and farmers. And because of this propaganda, this intensified the political divide over time. So if, do you think if it wasn't for Germany and Belgium getting involved, everything would have been... Fine. I think as usual with uh, a lot of colonies, if if white people just stayed out of it, <laughs> yeah, as usual. maybe this could have been avoided. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. That doesn't excuse what Felicia Kabuga did, though. But No, but we'll find out. Felicia Kabuga is a Hutu. He grew up poor in a farming family and he taught himself how to read and write and he would peddle around selling cigarettes and secondhand clothes and he began cultivating tea and with enough money he moved to Kigali where he sold anything he could get his hands on. And things were looking good for Kabuga and at this time in 1962 Rwanda had won independence and the Tutsi ruling class was beginning to fall. Yeah, so in 1959, the Hutus took power with a blood-soaked revolution. And three years later, the country was given independence from colonial rule. And then over the years, Rwanda transitioned into an independent republic with a Hutu government. Kibuga then met some Indian merchants in Uganda who sold him goods such as farm tools. And among them were machetes. When Idi Amin expelled the Indian population from Uganda in 1972, the Indian merchants took all their inventories to Kabuga, who sold them for high profits. American sanctions against Uganda at this time 
forced Ugandan coffee growers to go to Kabuga to disguise their beans as Rwandan. He became a real estate magnate, owning supermarkets, warehouses and apartments. He became known as one of Rwanda's richest men. He owned tea and flour mills and built Rwanda's first shopping centre. One genocide survivor said in the Netflix documentary that if someone in the neighbourhood became rich, then they would be called Kabuga. Kabuga married off two of his daughters to sons of President Juvenal Habiyarimana, a Hutu who seized power in 1973 following a coup. Kabuga became part of the Hutu elite and dangerous radicalisation was forming against the Tutsi. In Uganda, the Tutsi formed a rebel force called the Rwandan Patriotic Front and invaded Rwanda in 1990, advancing within 25 miles of Kigali. Going back to the Hutu elite, he became part of a network called the Akazu, who contributed to the genocide, and the first lady of Rwanda, Agatha Kanziga, was also a member. President Habiyarimana agreed to share power with the Tutsi in 1993, which the Hutu elite did not agree with, and so accelerated their plan to eradicate the Tutsi. RTLM, which is Radio Mill Colin, was launched in 1993. They played music to attract listeners, and in between songs they would broadcast propaganda against the Tutsis. Just before its launch, a publication called Kangura was also circulated, calling for the elimination of Tutsis. In February 1994, two months before the genocide, the hate speech on RTLM was becoming increasingly frantic. In a video, the Minister of Information, Faustin Rukugoza, threatened to shut the radio station down as it was promoting ethnic hatred. He asked Kabuga in November 1993 to stop RTLM from inciting hate as the Minister of Information was a moderate Hutu, so he didn't agree with what was being broadcasted. No, and in, was it in the Netflix documentary? Like, Kabuga's like, oh, we're just educating people. Yeah. We're just educate like, yeah, you're calling Tootsies, cockroaches, rats, telling them, that, you know, saying they should die. That's, that's I'm just educating. Yeah, so in this video, he, he replies to the Minister of Information that the radio station only tells the truth to the nation. And this video is the first and last time Kabuga was seen in public as a great leader of the Hutu extremists. On the 6th of April, one day before the genocide, Rukugoza and his family were taken by the army to a camp of the Presidential Guard, and on the 7th of April, they were assassinated. From January 1993 to March 1994, about 500,000 machetes were imported to Rwanda and Kabuga was one of the main importers. Rwandan President Habiyarimana and Burundian President Cyprian Antaria Mira, who were both Hutu, were on a plane when it was struck down by a service-to-air missile as it was about to land at Kigali Airport. Everyone on board was killed. The plane debris landed not far from the president's house where his children were waiting. The debris can still be seen today. RTLM were the first to share the news of the assassination. The Hutu extremists blamed the attack on the Tutsi rebels, but a US intelligence report later blamed Hutu extremists for shooting down the plane. There's a BBC documentary called Rwanda's Untold Story which suggests that the leader of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, who is the current president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, was involved in the shooting down of the presidential plane. And the Al Jazeera video says the Hutus did it, but blamed the Tutsis to trigger the genocide. So one side's blaming the other, basically. Yeah, but I think... If RTLM were the first to, were actually the first to broadcast the news. It's a bit suspicious, isn't it? Yeah. And they were only um, supposed to be a local radio station. But over time, they managed to like, be broadcast further like, in other locations. So for a small radio, what's supposed to be a small radio station, like, how would they have that important piece of news before everyone else? Yeah. 
One of the RTLM presenters, Valerie Bemeriki, used her voice to spread some of the hateful messages against the Tutsi community. She believed, along with others like her, that the children of the Tutsi community were enemies. One of these messages said that there is no Tutsi as rich as Kabuga and threatened if any member of the community were to brag about their wealth, then they would be exterminated. The message also calls for all Hutus to unite and organise to eliminate all Tutsis so that their children and great-grandchildren never ever hear about the thing we call Tutsis. A lot of the messages called the Tutsi community cockroaches and uh, Valerie is in prison at the moment in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah, she's serving a life sentence. Yeah. All the people working at RTLM knew Kabuga was the big boss and it was his ideology that they were helping to spread. At the time of the genocide, Valerie Bemeriki read out names and addresses of Tutsis and was an advocate of the machete as a murder weapon. So one of the messages, as an example, was encircle them and kill them because they are there. And since her imprisonment, she said that she took part in the broadcasting because she feared her employer and that if she disobeyed, she would have been treated as a traitor. I think it was the Al Jazeera documentary, but they had one survivor, Jean-Pierre Sagahutu, and he, he was one of the names that was actually called out on the radio. And he had a business where he sold music assets, including revolutionary songs, which were popular among Tutsi rebels. RTLM broadcast his name so the soldiers would find him. And when he heard his name, he hid in a septic tank for two months and 15 days with just a radio, which he had the radio station playing just to keep up to date until the batteries ran out. I mean, thank goodness he survived, but that's what he had to endure. And this is what people were being put through because anyone could listen to the radio and soldiers, civilians and politicians were just outing Tutsis that they knew of. So, so the militia could go hunt them. Is that because they were threatened if they didn't? Yeah. Obviously, if you're a Tutsi, you're a target. And if you weren't actively... If you're a Tutsi sympathiser. Yeah, a moderate Hutu or a Tutsi sympathiser. So like that Minister of Information. Yeah. He, he wasn't extreme enough. He didn't agree with the ideology and he was killed with his family. So yeah, I don't know if Jean-Pierre Sagahutu was actually a Tutsi himself, but the fact that he sold assets that were popular amongst Tutsis was enough for him to become a target. Yeah, I can't imagine what he went through. Two months and 15 days, how, how can anyone survive that? And he couldn't, like, in that time, you don't know what's happening to your family, to your neighbours. No. Uh, yeah, it's just unimaginable. So Valerie Bemeriki uh, fled to Kigali in July 1994 and was arrested in the Democratic Republic of Congo and she was sentenced to life imprisonment in 2009. The radio was seen as the most powerful weapon of the genocide. Without it, an entire population would never have been able to mobilise effectively against the Tutsi community. Kabuga had given weapons, money and uniforms to the militia. He conducted meetings in his office and Jean-Pierre Rizindana, who was in prison for 10 years for his involvement, witnessed the machetes being delivered and then the murders started. During the genocide, roadblocks were set up where people had to show their identity cards, which identified them as either Hutu or Tutsi. The victims had their Achilles heels cut so that they couldn't run away before being killed. One roadblock in front of Kabuga's commercial complex was regarded by survivors as Shea Kabuga, and it was one of the bloodiest sites. So on the 12th of April, between 300 and 500 men, women and children had sought refuge at a large modern mosque in southern Kigali. Soldiers joined the Hutu militiamen and surrounded the mosque and they killed approximately 300 people. Hundreds of thousands of women and girls were also raped by Hutu neighbours, militia and soldiers. They were also attacked with machetes and other items and some were then assaulted further at the hospital which was overrun by Hutu militia while trying to seek treatment. 
In just 100 days, around 800,000 people were killed, both Tutsi and moderate Hutus. And according to Al Jazeera, this was more than 10% of the population. According to the TED education video, around 1 million Hutus joined in the genocide due to coercion, self-preservation or pursuit of personal agendas. The UN leaders at the time refused to acknowledge the genocide and UN soldiers who were there to ensure the peace accord were instructed to leave and therefore abandon the Tutsis. The peacekeeping force was reduced from 2,500 troops to just 500. The Hutus' days were numbered as the Rwandan Patriotic Front was beginning to take control of the country and was forcing the government army towards the border. The RPF, who had invaded Rwanda previously in 1990, they targeted RTLM as they knew that would be the most effective way to save lives. They began taking action on the 17th of April 1994 and by the 3rd of July they were successful. RTLM fled to the Congo and the Hutu militia also fled. However, this also increased the hysteria. RTLM warned the Hutu that Tutsi rebels were in the process of exacting revenge and urged the Hutu to flee. Among the two million crowds of terrified civilians, the genocideers made their exit, with most fleeing to Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. In the months after the genocide, 120,000 Rwandans were awaiting trial and civilians of every level were involved, but they were dying in prisons because of the overcrowding and poor hygiene. So then the government had to come up with a way to speed things up, and they came up with this like hybrid way of carrying out the trials, which is explained in the Al Jazeera video. And they started their trials in 2002 and concluded them 10 years later in 2012 with 1.7 million people convicted. But a lot of them would have just been, you know, people who were brainwashed or coerced into committing. They weren't the big people making the decisions. Yeah, so like Felicia and Kabuga. Yeah. I mean, obviously, they still, justice still needed to be delivered, but these were like the easy trials in a way, if you get what I mean, like... Were the trials held in Rwanda or were they held somewhere else? I think these ones were held in Rwanda and like they kind of, the the Al Jazeera video explains it so much better than I am, but they kind of like came up with four categories based on like the different crimes and they had like witness testimonies to help them decide if and how people should be convicted. But like the fact that it took 10 years shows what a big task that was. Yeah, I I just can't imagine 1.7 million people being convicted for murdering people, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think some of it, a lot of it was was probably the murder, but, um, you know, some of it could have been, like, lesser crimes, but still related to the genocide, I suppose. Yeah, I see what you mean, yeah. Because those at RTLM were arrested as well, weren't they? yeah. Yeah, the ones that they caught anyway. Yeah. So about one million people were encamped in horrible conditions near an active volcano in a town called Goma in Zaire. And there was a cholera outbreak which killed thousands a day. With his money and connections, Kabuga managed to escape this horror. And he was able to get a visa from the Swiss consulate with his wife and seven of his children He travelled to the Swiss city of Bern with no questions asked. Officials were unsure of his exact involvement in the genocide at the time and he went to a refugee processing centre to seek asylum and was moved to a luxury hotel. Unfortunately for Kabuga, there were Rwandan refugees who witnessed him at the refugee centre and, like, you know, they've all just got their one backpack and their handful of belongings and he's got like a whole truckload of suitcases and bags. Yeah, he, he comes with like his whole entourage and really stands out. Yeah, it's a bit stupid. Anyway, the witnesses begged the authorities to arrest him, but the Swiss 
government didn't want the burden of a political trial, so they sent Kabuga and his family back to Zaire. He was able to clear all of his money from his Swiss bank accounts before he left. And there was a former Swiss intelligence officer, Jacques Pitilud, and he, he had witnessed what had happened in Rwanda. And like he says in the Netflix show, that one of the things that stuck in his brain was seeing children being burnt. And he was horrified that his country could offer asylum to Kabuga. He had heard the rumours that Kabuga was going to be deported from Switzerland and he called the Federal Office for Foreigners and told them not to let him leave. However, a couple of days later, Kabuga boarded a plane to Geneva, which understandably left Jacques very, like, he felt powerless and very frustrated. Yeah, he must have been so ashamed. Like, he's a former intelligence officer, he'd, he'd worked for his country, yet his country weren't sticking up for the people that needed to be stuck up for. Yeah, basically. After leaving Switzerland, Kabuga went to Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Kinshasa is a big city with international class hotels, but in 1994, there were only two of them. Jean-Jacques Fontaine, a Swiss reporter, went to the Intercontinental and asked the receptionist there if he could speak to Kabuga. The receptionist replied with which room he was staying in and called him. Kabuga accepted Fontaine's request for an interview. He was with his family and seemed completely calm. He thought it was unfair that he got deported from Switzerland as he followed the procedure for asylum. And there's a video recording of this interview which shows him sitting next to his daughter who is acting as a translator. Kabuga was asked if he was asked any questions when he arrived in Geneva, to which he replied there were no questions, his visa was valid and he entered as he would usually do. He denied having any involvement in the genocide and said that he was just a businessman who invested in numbers of companies in Rwanda, including RTLM. He elaborated that he was a shareholder and not the only one that invested in simple commercial radio. At the time of this interview, it was well known that RTLM was the main instigator for the genocide. This uh, Swiss reporter, he was like very determined to speak to Kabuga. So he knew that he would be staying at at least one of these hotels. So he, he just gambled and chose the intercontinental. It's like 50-50. Yeah. And the first one he tries, he's, he's staying in. And I love how the receptionist like, yeah, he's just staying in this room. Yeah. Let me just give him a call. <laughs> so she, she must not have realised who he was. Or perhaps it wasn't well known at that time. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, it's just the confidence he has, like, to just have this journalist come in. You know, he's got no fear that he's going to get caught. <laughs> yeah. And he, he believes his own lies as well. Yeah. So in 1997, the political climate in Kenya changed and the Kenyan intelligence services started looking for the genocidaires. At least half a dozen were arrested and Kabuga was one of them. The UN International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda indicted him in 1997 on seven counts of genocide. One was for the propaganda, including the creation and operation of Radio Milkolin, RTLM which acted as both a radio and a television station, calling for the massacre of the Tutsis. And then the other indictment was for the creation and funding of the militia with several other businessmen. However, after his arrest, Kabuga's lawyers and the connections he had with people in the Kenyan government claimed he was a victim of political persecution and he was released. Due to the fact he had lots of money, Kabuga was able to buy visas and people's silence he used his own name on his visa and was able to set up an import-export business so he could move freely. He had a lot of houses in expensive areas, which also gave him income. And the president of Kenya at the time was corrupt and refused to hand over Rwandan war criminals to the UN. The FBI then started setting up operations around the world to apprehend the Rwandan war criminals and they were able to make arrests in Cameroon and knew that Kabuga was in Kenya. So, just to rewind a little bit, 
when the genocide was happening, the USA decided not to get involved. Bill Clinton later apologised for the USA's inaction, saying that they didn't fully appreciate the level of violence. But when the genocide was happening, his administration knew all about it, and Washington DC even considered attacking RTLM. But some of the tactics that they came up with, they deemed the methods to be too expensive. So they'd rather save money than save lives? Well, maybe like all the other countries they invade, they knew that they wouldn't get anything in return, like oil or whatever. Mm. Don't know. But what did apparently trigger the US to get involved was an incident in 1999 when eight safari tourists, including two Americans and four Brits, were raped, tortured and killed by Hutu extremists as an act of revenge against the US and UK for their perceived support of the Tutsis. Six others were released and among those six were French people and we'll find out why they were released a bit later. It was only then that the US decided to take action and they offered a $5 million bounty for Kabuga. Before this, they just saw the situation as an unfixable tribal conflict. Meanwhile, in 2000, Kabuga's family had resettled in Europe and his wife Josephine lobbied a former Rwandan assemblyman, Rukagu Boniface, to try and recover Kabuga's reputation. She pleaded with Rukagu that Kabuga was a good man and wanted a message passed on to the Rwandan government that Kabuga was being falsely accused. Going back to what you said about the US not wanting to get involved and they didn't fully appreciate the level of violence. But there was like tons of video footage of this of this going on at the time, right? There was like news broadcasts happening and Yep, and you kinda you're gonna as we'll discuss a bit later on, but France also give that kind of excuse as well. In June 2002, the FBI launched a wanted campaign in Kenya where they set up hotlines for people to call with intelligence on Kabuga's whereabouts. And as mentioned, the $5 million bounty was listed as a a reward for finding him. A witness came forward and to test his credibility, they performed a lie detector test, which he passed. He was willing to set up a sting operation to help the FBI arrest Kabuga. The witness was William Minuhe, a journalist working for a local newspaper in Kenya who had close links to the government and was introduced to Kabuga. William realised who he was and contacted the FBI. In the Netflix documentary, William's brother mentions that he was told by William that he had friends from America visiting and that they could help raise the family's living situation. Government officials asked William to hide Kabuga. The FBI believed there was a leak in the Kenyan security system who alerted Kabuga that William Munahe was an FBI informant. His brother received a letter from William which detailed what happened next. He was kidnapped on a highway in Nairobi, blindfolded and put in the boot of a car. He was then interrogated by Kabuga and two other men. He was criticised for his betrayal and asked what relationship he had with America. He was tortured with electric shocks and his phones were taken away. The letter then has an abrupt ending. On January 14th, 2003, the FBI set up a meeting with William where Kabuga was going to go to his house, but Kabuga never showed up. The FBI tried to contact William, but there is no answer. They went inside William's house, where he was found dead. Senior police officers claimed that William had died from suicide and his death certificate showed that the death was uncertain pending a full toxicology due to carbon monoxide levels, but the evidence inside the house told a different story. His throat was cut and there was blood everywhere, including the sink which suggested that someone had tried to clean up. They actually show footage of this in the Al Jazeera video and it's like blood everywhere. Yeah, they showed pictures of it in the Netflix documentary as well. And there there was no investigation. The family weren't allowed to, they couldn't have an autopsy done. So the Kenyan authorities denied William was murdered and that Kabuga was involved. When they did the lie detector test on William, 
They also apparently did one on a, a government official. And so this is what the guy who was leading the, the operation. Mm. So in the Al Jazeera video, he says like they did the test on William and he passed. And then they did a test on the government official and they failed so that they knew William was credible. So I feel like they fucked that up, it seems like, because obviously if a government official is having a lie detector test by the US, they're going to know, oh shit something's happening. Do you know who this uh, government official was? No, the American guy, the FBI guy, he just says they did two polygraph tests, one on William and one on a government official, and the government official failed. And I feel like maybe that has something to do with, you know, them finding out that you're looking for Kabuga. Because <laughs> it was an open secret that he was in Kenya. It wasn't like no one knew he was there. It was just trying to find him and pin him down. Yeah, so I don't, yeah, I don't understand the FBI's thinking like with that. I feel like they fucked up that one yeah. and cost someone's life. And I don't understand how they're still relying on lie detector tests when it's been proved that they... They're unreliable. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I digress. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, me too. <laughs> After William's death, information about Kabuga dried up. His killing was a warning to others who might want to pass on information to the Americans. Kabuga moved out of Kenya, but the FBI could not figure out where he had gone to, only that there was rumours that he was, went to the Seychelles, and that he had surgery to change his appearance. On September the 17th, 2007, Kabuga's son-in-law was arrested for his part in the genocide. He was apprehended in an internet cafe in Germany and was using a thumb drive on one of the computers. He tried to destroy the USB stick by stomping on it. A German police officer found pieces of the stick and gave it to experts to recover. Upon recovery, they found an invoice for the hospitalisation of a Tanzanian. This document had photo ID of the person and it was a clear match for Kabuga who had been smuggled to Germany on a fake passport and was staying with his son-in-law. However, there was no solid evidence for Kabuga's whereabouts. He had disappeared yet again. Kabuga's son-in-law had used his phone call when he was arrested to notify his wife, who quickly moved her father out of the grasp of the authorities. The UN investigators had tapped the phones of Kabuga's children, who were scattered between London, Belgium and Paris but they did not reveal any information, possibly because they knew they were being listened to. On May 26, 2010, the French police came up with a plan to arrest Kabuga. They were helped by Jean-Francois Dupacier, who wrote a report on the RTLM's role in the genocide. He discovered one of Kabuga's friends had died and the burial was taking place in Paris. His friend was Jean Bosco Barriagvisa, who was part of RTLM. He received a 30-year sentence and died in prison. With hopes that Kabuga would show up at the funeral, a cameraman and police were hidden inside the cemetery. Dupacier was also there. The exits of the cemetery were blocked in case Kabuga tried to escape, but he didn't show up. Instead, Dr. Eugene Wamukyo was there who was wanted on an international arrest warrant, so he got arrested instead. And in the Netflix documentary, there's footage of this arrest, and he's just smiling as he's being handcuffed by the officers. It's just really bizarre. <laughs> yeah, and then as he's walking towards the police car, he just casually calls out to someone, Call my lawyer. Yeah, it's like, A, you're at a funeral, and B, you're being arrested for, like, horrendous crimes. And he's just so chill about it. Yeah, he's just really casual. So he must have known that there was a chance that he would be arrested. And I'm guessing there were other people there that were wanted as well. Yeah, yeah. Nobody knew where Kubuga was hiding at this time, and there were rumours he was in Kenya and in Belgium. Then in 2019... London counterterrorism officers had discovered travel records of Kabuga's London-based daughter. She had visited France numerous times. At the beginning of 2020, the British authorities sent this information to French police. Kabuga's daughter and some of her other siblings have visited a particular area called Agnès. On May 16th, a meeting outside an apartment complex in Agnès was set up. 
Officers went through the basement of the apartments and made their way up the stairs discreetly. Once in position at an apartment door, they went inside. Kabuga was captured. He was living under a false ID, but acknowledged to the officers that he was Felician Kabuga. Yeah, so in the um, France, one of the France 24 videos, they say there's speculation that maybe COVID actually helped with catching him because obviously everything went into lockdown. So some of the cases that the police were working on were suspended or kind of just like put on the back burner. So the police were able to put their resources onto other cases, including the search for Kabuga. So there's some speculation that COVID helped them focus on him and pin him down. Yeah, and the the fact that his daughter was visiting him a lot. COVID must have played a role in that as well, because he would have needed support. He's, what, in his 80s? Yeah, and, like, the neighbours didn't actually know his name, like, his alias. So he was obviously living a very secluded life and therefore would have needed the support of his family because he couldn't go out and, like, just be in society because he would have been caught. Yeah, so thanks, COVID, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) The only good thing you've done. Yeah. (laughs) So on the 27th of May, Kabuga was taken to his bail hearing and the room was filled with journalists, Tutsi survivors and human rights activists and Kabuga's children were also present. Kabuga faced five counts of genocide and two counts of crimes against humanity, and when he was questioned, he mumbled that he was innocent and that the accusations were false. His son, Donatia, spoke to a GQ reporter and said this about his father. His cognitive health is not good, his memory is going. The day of his arrest, he was asked when he was born, and he said 1993. That would make him 27 years old. It's inhumane to put someone so weak, who walks so slowly, who can barely remember when he was born, in a jail cell. The court ruled that there was nothing wrong with Kabuga medically and no legal obstacles for him not to be turned over to the tribunal. In November, he was transferred to The Hague and pleaded not guilty. Kabuga's family all believed that he was innocent and convinced he was just a businessman at the time of the genocide. Which is bullshit because his children were even part of that Akazu network as well. So they were in on it. And his son-in-law as well. Yeah, so just bullshit. In 2021, Emmanuel Macron gave a speech saying that he recognised France's responsibility in the 1994 genocide, but France was not complicit. Two reports had been commissioned, one by the Rwandan government in 2017 and then another one by Macron himself. The Rwandan report, which was a 600-page report, concluded that France enabled the genocide and then withheld critical documents and testimony in the decades after. France did nothing to stop the massacre and therefore held significant responsibility for the deaths. And I think, I can't remember which article this is quoted from, but it said that In the years leading up to the genocide, former French President François Mitterrand and his administration had knowledge of the preparations of the massacres, yet they kept supporting the government of the then Rwandan president, Habyarimani, despite the warning signs. In the other 1,200-page report, which Macron commissioned, this concluded With France's heavy and overwhelming responsibilities and the blindness of the socialist president at the time, François Mitterrand and his entourage in the face of the racist and genocidal drift of the Hutu government, which Paris then supported. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got the USA, like, not doing anything because they thought it's just a tribal conflict. And then on the other hand, you've got France again, not doing anything and watching this unfold. And that's why I think when that incident happened with the safari tourists, among the six people that were let go, there were some French people. And I think because France were in sort of support of the Hutus, they were the Hutu extremists didn't murder those French people. They just targeted 
the Brits and Americans as their acts of revenge. But yeah, it's just funny because then they find Kabuga in Paris of all places. So he would have got there on, we said that he got to France on fake IDs. Yeah. But it seems to me like his appearance hasn't really changed much from 1994. Like you can still recognise that it's him. He's just gotten old. Yeah. But yeah. But his facial yeah. features are the same. I mean, he was on the run for like 26 years and every country he managed to go through have questions to answer on how they failed to stop him. You know, every country has a responsibility, whether it's Switzerland, Germany, France, Kenya. He's been to loads of countries and none of them were able to find him. Yeah, like this is the thing. Um, Like anyone else like him who's been on the run that long, like some of those people probably died of old age and justice is never going to be brought. And well, we'll see what happens with Kabuga. Mm. Kabuga's trial opened in The Hague on the 29th of September 2022. Rwanda issued more than 40 arrest warrants for suspects living in France, which were still pending. And as I said earlier, it's possible that some of these may have passed away from old age without ever having been punished for their crimes. Kabuga refused to appear in court or join remotely, and he won this right due to ill health. He also wanted to choose his own lawyer, but he didn't have this right. The court had appointed him a lawyer, and if he wanted to choose his own lawyer, he would have had to have unfreeze his assets to pay for them. So do you think they didn't want him to choose his own lawyer because they would have been corrupt? Either corrupt or really good, because he was, he's quite wealthy. And damn right, you don't get to choose your own lawyer. <laughs> so he did eventually physically attend, but there were still obstacles. Because of his age, the court had to allow the hearings to run only for two hours, three times a week. And that meant that the trial had a very slow pace. And there was also a break from December to mid-February. Then the court put the trial on hold on the 10th of March 2023 over health concerns. And as of this time, 62 Rwandan genocide suspects have been convicted by the tribunal so far. The prosecutor had lodged an appeal seeking a revival of the trial and on the 23rd of March, three medical experts presented findings of their examinations on Kabuga and told the judges that he was significantly affected by physical illness and had vascular damage to his brain. However, there was a disagreement between them as to whether Kabuga was fit for trial. One of the medical experts believed that Kabuga's cognitive decline was limited but he still had capacity, whereas the others disagreed and said that he didn't have capacity. I read one of the PDFs for the trial reports. They're, they're published online and you can get access to them. And it said that one of the experts said that he was able to understand and make jokes, whereas the other experts said that he wasn't able to do that. So it, I don't know, it's like, is he playing one type of person to one expert and then the other type of person to the other expert to, to make sure there's doubt? Oh, I don't know, because I think dementia's a really tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if he has been diagnosed with dementia, yeah. then yeah, it is a tricky one. But at this stage, was he? Isn't that vascular damage to the brain is? Oh, yes. Yeah, vas it is vascular dementia, which refers to the changes to memory, thinking and behaviour. Uh, okay, so that explains a lot. Yeah, and it's a shame because the trial was put on hold just before the commemoration in April for the 29th anniversary of the genocide. So it's almost 10 years. Crazy. Not 10 years, sorry. It's almost 30 years. I was going to say, what is 10 years? Yes. I know. <laughs> it's almost, we're not that young. Um, it's almost, it's almost 30 years since the genocide. And like this guy still hasn't been, you know, well, we'll say what happens. On the 7th of June, it was ruled that Kabuga was unfit to have meaningful participation in his trial. However, one of the three judges disagreed with this decision, but the majority prevailed. The most recent update we've had is from August 2023, 
And that was when the appeals chamber decreed an indefinite hold to the proceedings as Kabuga had been diagnosed with dementia. As a result, the judges were considering releasing Kabuga, which understandably is a huge disappointment to the survivors. And he is currently being held in a UN detention facility in the Netherlands, awaiting a new assessment to decide his potential release. And apparently he still has property holdings in France and has substantial wealth as a result of this. And it's expected that he will actually be released, which brings us to the end of our episode. Yeah, that was a heavy one. With not a very good ending, I'm afraid. No. If he is released, where are they going to put him? Because if he goes back to Rwanda, there's... That's a good question. There's going to be so many people, like, out for him. That's a very good question. People know who he is. Yeah. He's he's going to need, like, proper health care as well, if he's got dementia. So maybe he's going to go back to France? Don't know. Or be with his children, like, whether it's in London or Belgium. Who knows? But then his... If he can't be held accountable, then surely his children should be. Because his children have helped a a criminal hide for the past 30 years. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, because it is very political at the end of the day, isn't it? And yeah, because even if they do, if they can pin any charges on his children, he's still free, potentially. Yeah. And he's the he's the main, like one of the main financiers of the genocide. It's got to be so frustrating for the survivors and their families to know, like, after all these years, he's slipping through the net again. Yeah, that makes me feel like they should probably charge him, but hold him at a like hospice hospice uh, location or or something like that. If I'm making sense, like a care home for criminals. Yeah, sorry. I'm not making sense. It's half past nine at night. It's way past our bedtime. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a cat meowing in the background. I know. I'm so sorry. She seems to have calmed down now. She's going to be calm after we've stopped recording because <laughs> yeah. that's what she does. <laughs> she just wants attention, it sounds like. We should have called our podcast Cats and Crimes, honestly. <laughs> it's too late now. <laughs> If it wasn't your cats, it'd be my dog Luna interrupting things. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's just crazy how, you know, just a small group of people creates so much damage. And it's like generational damage as well, generational suffering. And he just like gets away with it. Basically, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about it. It's so like infuriating. And uh, yeah, I just feel really, really sorry for the victims and the, the survivors. Yeah. I mean, it makes you wonder what's going to happen to the other people that um that haven't been arrested yet, that they're still hunting down. I mean, this is the thing. It happened almost 30 years ago. So half of them are probably dead or just forgotten about if they weren't caught. Yeah. And meanwhile, you've got like a million or so people that have been put through trial, but they were just like pawns in a bigger game kind of thing. Yeah, that's what Valerie, the radio presenter, said, wasn't it? Mm. They were just the small fry. Yeah. But the the bigger component, the bigger... The the main people. Yeah, the main main people had just escaped and no one's really served real real justice. Yeah, and that's the other thing, like, like these were businessmen that were controlling all of this. So when it all, when shit hit the fan, they had the money and the means to escape. Whereas... All the people that they brainwashed, scared, coerced, they didn't have those means. No, and they didn't have top-notch lawyers either. Yeah, like they they can't just buy visas and fake passports and whatnot. So it's like, you don't they don't give a fuck about the Hutus themselves either. No, they're just out for themselves. Yeah, yeah, it's just crazy. Crazy what power can do. And like when you get a group of people to hear a message so many times and instill fear in them what you can make them do a bit grim yeah should we try and lighten things up a bit next week (laughs) next time (laughs) yeah let's try so for our next episode 
uh, we will discuss the Bangladesh bank heist of 2016. And this was one of the world's biggest cyber heists, where 81 million US dollars was stolen. And most of that has still not been recovered. We will talk about the Lazarus Group and how they fucked up reading their star signs and were not given the fortunes Jupiter promised. And all will become clear in the next episode. Yeah. I actually didn't know about this heist. Don't know where, where my head was in 2016. I knew bits of it because my partner loves watching YouTube videos about things like this and organised cyber crimes and heists and whatnot. So I knew yeah. I knew about it, but I didn't realise how how thought out this plan was. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. Hopefully less macabre than today. Yeah. Yeah, sorry f- for dragging you through that, listeners. Join us next week. <laughs> or next time. <laughs> Download and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We hope you still do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find more information about the show on our website at feloniouspod.com or on our Instagram at feloniouspod. Links to our show notes can be found in the episode description as well as through our website and social media. You can visit our Contact Us page and tell us what you think about the show and if there are any cases you would like us to cover. We hope you join us for the next episode. Goodbye! Bye!